Welcome to the Bush Performance Podcast. All right, what's up, guys? Uh, today we got Zach Dakin with TCU uh, Strength and Conditioning. What's up, Zach? How you doing? I appreciate you having me on, DJ. Absolutely, man. Sorry for the little bit delay, um, but you know we're we're getting there. Uh, we got Brandon Monahan today. How you guys doing? And then uh, Ashton Newell, as usual. Hello. Taylor. Taylor got sick. He's being a little bit of a wimp, so. <laughs> he's supposed to be on. And then Coach Chris Adams is supposed to be on too, but we had three assessments in Colorado, so I don't know what happened there. But uh, yeah, so today, Zach, I want to just give you a little bit of background about uh, who you are and all you've at TCU and the new new coaching staff now. Kind of go into that. Background is I've been at TCU for uh, this is going to be fifteen going on fifteen seasons, so fourteen years right now. I came in the middle of the season, the first year. Um, you know, prior to that, was with the uh, Anaheim Angels as a strength coach, played uh, as an athlete, uh, played football in college at Missouri State. And the way I got tied in with TCU was we don't have a separate department in the strength and conditioning side. So football, baseball, everybody kind of works, you know, with, with all sports. And I had been in both and um, was just the perfect opportunity at the perfect time now. Since COVID, I have I do not handle any football responsibilities anymore, so it's it's solely baseball. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's actually it's one of the few guys that's able to do that in the industry at the collegiate level, right? Yeah. So uh, it was very very difficult for the first thirteen years um, because you've got football seven days a week in the fall, and then you you know go into December January where baseball practice starts ramping up. And then it's seven days a week from January to basically July, a lot of those years, July 1st. And I would have, there was a couple of years where I would only have four Saturdays off the entire year outside of, I think, the two weeks of Christmas. So really six Saturdays, probably. I'd have four Saturdays off. How the hell did you stay married? Or how are you with your wife still? <laughs> that's that's probably why I'm able to get, I got married two years ago. That's probably why. Uh, yeah, you knew this was coming. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, um, but it's, it's been a blessing not having to do that. Obviously, I miss football, but um, as I get later in life and we've talked about, you know, I'm getting ready to have uh, our first kid. Um, it's going to be a blessing down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something I love. Right. Where I get to spend time with my family. You know, we've been all offered jobs and based in pro ball or food setting. And it's just like, do I want to give up that family time? You know, see my kids grow and, and all that kind of stuff. But now for you, I mean, that's, you're working with one sport. That's everybody's dream right there. That's, yeah, <laughs> that I'm is, excited. I mean, it's, it's a different culture. We can talk about that too, right? Where the the culture of baseball and the culture of football are two totally different aspects, right? And your coaching voice is going to be a little bit different for the football side than it is the baseball side. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I do and I, I, I don't in a way. Obviously, athletes are athletes, right? We're, we're yeah. going to coach them to the best of our ability, regardless of what sport they play. But but you're right in a little bit of the uh, the culture of the program and what the uh, sport coach wants a lot of times. Um, I was very lucky in a sense that the culture that our previous head coach who just left this month, um, Jim Schlossnagel, what he set as the culture he wanted. He wanted a culture of, you know, of, of toughness, of the small things matter greatly, um, which isn't that different from a lot of football coach, uh, cultures a lot of times. So um, we kind of had similar cultures as a football program in a way, obviously geared towards baseball 100%, but the, the, the underlying culture was very, very, very much um, discipline, toughness, always doing those little things. The small things matter a lot. And so um, – it really, I wouldn't say it was a tremendous amount of difference. It's just there are some, yeah, intricacies in, in, in the way you coach your athletes a little bit differently based on the sport that they play, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm talking more so just like the tone of voice you use or right, I think baseball are a little bit more, guys are a little bit more cerebral. They're just like a little bit more kind of like zenny, right, where football players are more amped up and, you know, ready to get after it all the time. Do you agree with that? So, yeah, a little bit. And – part of that probably too. I mean, you guys in your facility, there's obviously going to be a lot more individualization going on in your facility because the difference in, in the team setting versus a facility, private, uh, private setting a lot of times is 
I've got a 45 minute window or an hour window to train 49 guys. And so individualization in a way sometimes goes out the window. Right. And so, yes, you're right in a lot of cases, but at the same time training that team, I have to be very loud. I have to be very vocal. Yeah. The way our guys, some of our guys perceive things and, and you've got some weird dudes playing baseball, right? Yeah, exactly. That's my point. That's my point. <laughs> there are some weird dudes playing football, but on the whole, there's probably less weird dudes. Yeah. Uh, and it can be challenging. You know, sometimes you get sometimes you'll have kids that uh, that don't agree with how you're training them on the football side. I've run into that many times where they want to they want to bow up and 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 prove something. I really don't see that much on the baseball side. Guys are much more accepting of of the training. And, you know, I, I remember when I was a young coach, actually, football players would a lot of times think that you were out to get them in a way and think that you were against them. Like yeah. we're in this together. I'm yeah. helping you to helping us to build a better team. Like I'm making you run, not because I want to be a, an a-hole or anything like that. I'm making you run because we have to be prepared for what's going to happen in season. I, I don't ever see that with baseball. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I guess they baseball, there's, there's like two different sport demands too, right? You got to have be more conditioned in football. So you got to get the, kick their ass a little bit, right? Yeah. And you got to dominate them. And then in baseball, say, all right, let's manage our workloads. Let's, you know, we got to pair your high days, your high days in the weight room and the mound or whatever you're doing. And then we got to have a true recovery day, right? Yeah. And that, and that probably ties into it a lot more too, in that you don't have to do the hard running sessions like you do with football. There's not as big as energy system requirement, obviously. So yeah. that's where, that's where some of the football kids would, would get upset or they'd, feel like you know like like i said you were out to get them and you were against them and trying to make them do hard stuff just for the sake of doing hard stuff and that's not what it was about baseball obviously a different sport you don't have to do a lot of that stuff exactly i mean what do you i mean we can go into a little bit of the conditioning side like what are your what are your kind of go-to conditioning things right now like i know um you guys you guys probably do a lot of sprint stuff i, I was out there with you a couple of years ago and you know you're all about the sprint stuff so can we, can we talk about that just a little bit yeah. So as far as, as far as, you know, speed, power, strength goes, we are 100% believers in maximal velocity. That's the tide that lifts all shift, acceleration, everything. So we're going to train that year round, you know, with that vertical integration system, all pieces are present. It's just in the volumes that we adjust throughout where we're at in the, uh, in, in the year. Um, as far as the energy system development stuff goes, I was actually just doing a presentation with one of my interns on our GPS data and how we train position players based on the demands that they're going to face when they walk in the door for practices. So um, there's so much more running and moving in baseball than a lot of people realize. Absolutely. Um, so tempo runs are, are a huge piece of the puzzle for us in building the volumes that they're going to see their on feet volumes when they, they have the first two weeks of practices. Tempo runs are the biggest thing that we, that we do. Tempo runs for us are extensive runs, Submaximal, so that means under 75% of max intensity. And we do these a thousand different ways in in distances, in how we start the tempo run, um, just so that we can prepare our guys for the demands that they're going to face. So I'll give you a quick example, and I don't mean to get long on this. No, no, no. Based on our GPS data, we'll, we'll see the first, um, the first week of practice, an average of 60 or 50 to 60 changes of direction in acceleration and deceleration per practice in that first week. So if you, if you're not preparing your position players to accelerate and decelerate that many times leading up to the first week of practices, then the tissue is not prepared. And that's where you see injuries, you know, three, four days into practices. That's where you see injuries two weeks into practices. We see it every year in spring training hamstrings, um, groin injuries, soft tissue stuff with position players all the time because they are not prepared for the demands that they're going to face. Exactly. And I mean, we, we are firm believers in tempo runs. We love, we tempo run the shit out of our guys, truthfully. Um, and we do that as kind of a recovery day. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, what, how do you, how do you stack your, your speed, quote unquote, speed days or conditioning days with your lift days? So, it's still going to be just like you guys detail all the time. It's going to be a high-low system, right? The high days are your max output days, sprints, flying sprints, accelerations, all that type work. 
your low days are going to be recovery days, which for us are going to be extensive tempo runs. Yep. But what people don't understand is those low days aren't just a joke. You know, I have yeah. pro athletes all the time in here that they hear the term low day or recovery day. And they say, well, I'm not showing up to that because, you know, I'm just showing up for the good days. I don't need to do that, that stuff. But you can stack so much training volume and so many other little things in those days that are really, really important. Just because it's a low day or recovery day, all that means is we're not maximally doing something to fatigue us. Absolutely. We still have a ton of yeah. other stuff on that day. And you you know exactly what I'm talking about, I'm sure. Absolutely. Regaining ranges of motion. We can, you know, we can restabilize movement patterns that were that were poor patterns throughout the week and the strength patterns. Um, you know, we're we're big proponents. Like we do the same thing, huh, Brandon? Guys, like Tuesday, Thursdays in our gym, like half capacity what they are Monday, Wednesday, Friday for our high and that's frustrating. It used so to frustrating. frustrate the hell out of me with those pro guys that do that. Yeah. I mean, we, we throw jumps in on those days. We throw med ball throws. Yeah. We do all the stuff we do on a, on a high day. It's just we yeah. do it at a sub-maximal intensity. Um, and, but, but, but that's how we stack those tempo runs in. As we progress closer to the season, we start to include tempo runs even on high days because they have to, again, be prepared for the volumes intensities, distances that they're going to face in those first two weeks of practices. Well, I mean, it always goes back to, right? If you're ch training at a, a high peak energy all the time, right? You're, you're going to be chronically fatigued. Your CNS is going to be shot. Yep. Right. And then you get guys that don't really, like, like I just mentioned earlier, like we are completely off the force velocity curve, high day, low day. And if we are not achieving the low days or optimizing the, the high days, that's when our injuries are popping pop up, right? And you get, get, get guys that go off the kind of schedule where it's like, I'm going to lift, I'm going to put my 10 Monday, but I'm going to lift Tuesday, right? And in the off season, where we're able to control, we have a controlled environment with your bullpen, controlled right. environment with your lift, and the next day we can use as a, a regen day, complete regen, regaining ranges of motion, Decreasing your stiffness, your soreness, whatever it may be, right? Getting your soft tissue and getting all that stuff in, right? And then hitting your tempo runs and then getting out the door. You know, it's, I mean, it's kind of, Brennan, speak on that. It's a little frustrating sometimes. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It kind of just goes back to like what Zach said in the very beginning that the small things matter, you know, where you think about, it, you hear guys say, oh, I don't have the time, I don't have the time. And, you know, you miss two recovery days a week. And then over the course of the month, that's now eight training sessions that you've probably missed out on now where you could have had time to get better at something where like you're saying, you know, rec recapturing range of motion from, you know, prior days lifts or practices or um, restoring a little bit of tissue quality with some, you know, maybe some manual work there. Um, or like, you know, Zach was saying too, you can still get med ball work and still get tempo runs in. There's, there's so much you can still do on, on recovery days. And, you know, sometimes those are actually, I would say, probably more important to an extent. Absolutely. You can um, even hit isometrics on recovery days, right? Because if you have, if you're, if you're hitting an ISO, one leg and hip, hip extension, one leg and hip flexion, right? Whatever that one size has, the other size opposite. We're regaining the hip extension through ISOs. We're regaining certain movement patterns. It doesn't mean optimally loaded, right? But we can we can restore the motion in different ranges of motion by just getting into that pattern. You know? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, so and I didn't mean to cut you off back there, Brandon. So much of your job too is probably education for your high school and your pro athletes. Uh, I mean, high school, college, and pro because. You don't have access to them a lot of times year round. Your high school kids, you might, but your college and your pro guys, you probably don't have access to them year round. They're in another program, and a lot of that is dependent on them to be able to organize and um, consolidate those stressors that we're talking about. A hundred percent. And I mean, that goes back to a post that we made the other day. It's like communication with us coaches and the athletes is, is key, right? We don't know what the athletes feeling we can see what how they're moving we can see all that kind of stuff but nobody knows the athlete better than themselves right right so if we're not, if we're not getting communicative added communication that communication piece then we're just completely lost in the whole process yeah. you know and and that comes from the education side and yeah well sometimes we want to just get up pack our shit out and just leave you know we don't want to like screw you dude we're out of here like you're wasting our time you know what i mean but yeah. You know, it's hard for us. Like, 
we have guys that are 10 year, 11 year, 12 year big leaguers. This is like, well, if they don't want to do it, what do I say? Right. It's kind of like you've gotten this far. You're, you've been an all-star a few times, you know, yeah. but that's the hard part. Um, so. I think that just goes to like what Zach was saying, you know, just that education piece, you know, right. you just got to really just try and uh, break it down and just show them as much benefit and you know where they're just going to see some extra gains you know if you try and put it in those kind of terms you know if guys are you know a lot of athletes are you know addicted to that where you know you can just tell them that like hey some of your biggest gains are made on you know the deload week or you know those off days where you're actually getting the, the like full recovery you know absolutely absolutely what what do you got what do you got going on with your like what do you do with your fifth year guys your pro guys you know you know, your book is your moving over maxes is fantastic, awesome, right? Everybody talks to you about that. Let's dive into the deeper stuff of what you're doing. Oops, with, with your pro guys, what are you doing with um, with your fifth year guys that have been in your program for four years now? Yeah, um, what's what's going on with that? So, so how we handle it? Those uh, basically those older kids, what we call our advanced group. How we handle it. Our entry-level guys are coming in. They're going through the foundation program, movement over maxes. The, the biggest the biggest piece of that is movement, obviously. We've talked about that a lot. The second, when they graduate out of that into our intermediate program, that's when they go into strength development. Hopefully, they, they move well enough. They're probably uh, in the middle of their first year, if not you know, second, maybe third year. Strength development is a primary emphasis with power development as a secondary emphasis. After that, they graduate into our advanced program, and that is where they go into power development is number one. And really, a lot of times it's built around um, specific developmental exercises. So that's when we're trying. We do this for everybody, so it's hard to, to limit that out. But the skill is the most important thing for these guys, right? So we focus on power development in the weight room and we do a minimal volume of strength development. The only thing we do for strength development is to just, the only reason we do it is to stimulate motor units so that they can be powerful and explosive in another exercise. We basically contrast everything, but it's, it's similar to the, uh, you know, Cal stuff, um, with triphasic a little bit. Um, I'll use some of the same exercise selections, but we're basically doing one rep. Um, sometimes it's super maximal, sometimes it's submaximal. One rep to stimulate motor units, and then it's off into something powerful, whether it's a, a loaded jump, a med ball throw, um, you know, swinging a weighted or unweighted bat, something like that. But it's built around power development, and we try to find limiting factors as far as their skill work goes, um, whether it's in the motion capture lab, whether it's on the force plate, our inbound force plate. We're trying to create specific developmental exercises to benefit them in their skill. So create a bigger motor as far as power is concerned and, and, um, complement their skill. How much, how much are you doing? There's like force versus yielding for those guys. Right. Um, you know, cause like, obviously we need to train them to still decelerate a board force, you know, yield, yield. Right. Um, so how much, like what, I mean, that's going to go off in the time of year where we're working and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, yeah, we actually uh, we we do a ton of we do a ton of super maximal eccentrics. Again, like I say, I refer back to Caldeitz's triphasic work. We use that triphasic work for the advanced guys. I I I, I think that's way too stressful for younger athletes to utilize. You, there's there's too much low hanging fruit to have to use that early on and and waste that as an ability down the road. So we'll do a lot of the super maximal. We'll do tons of single leg work. It's, it's honestly all single leg work. There's, there's no bilateral work in that when it, uh, when they advance into that group and we do a ton of a uh, super maximal group. There's plenty of research out there that talks about super maximal eccentrics and their effect on power development. Um, so that is a big, big piece. That's always in the off season. When we get into the in season, so based on the residual training effect, we will touch those just a little bit. Every, honestly, really it's about once a month. We'll touch that strength and some of those super maximals, um, we'll touch them barely. But everything is, is built around power development in season and it's all auto-regulated again. So they get to pick how much and what they're doing. And th this is the crazy stuff that we've seen. I'll give you a quick example. I've got an athlete that is very... He's very, um, he's very CNS dominant. He was a, he's an explosive, explosive kid. He's jumped a 42 inch vertical. He can windmill dunk. 
um, just he's just a freaking hyper dude, right? His CNS is amped up. When he does our power and our peaking phases, that's really lightweight. A lot of times it's just band resistance as fast as you can move for time. When he does that type of stuff, it actually fatigues him. So what we would do is we would jump him on the force plate before and after their workout. Before to get a pre, after to see how much fatigue we had caused. All right. When he's in like these light power peaking phases that we call, he's shot. His post jump is absolutely trash, right? Because he gets so much fatigue, CNS fatigue from the workout moving fast. I have another athlete who is a very non-CNS dominant athlete. He's not fast. He's not explosive. He's going to have a, you know, a mid to upper 20s jump on a counter movement jump, vertical jump. When he does that peaking phase and all the fast, powerful stuff gets amped up by it and it, he hits new PRs after the workout all the time. When he's in a heavy, heavy lifting, slow lifting phase, fatigues him, destroys him, right? Whereas the high CNS dominant guy, when he's in the heavy, heavy super maximal phase, you'd be surprised. He actually hits PRs at that time. It's really crazy. We see some crazy stuff. Are there, are there body types, two different body types? Are they are. One's more of a narrow guy and one's more of a wider guy? So, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point. The guy, that, uh, the guy that's a high CNS dominant guy is, uh, you know, 6'5", 215 to 220 pounds. He's actually super, super wiry. Um, does not look like an athlete, but he is so fascial, just fascially driven. It's crazy. He runs a 0.93 flying 10. He's a pitcher. 0.93 flying 10. Like I said, I've, I've seen him go 42 inches on a uh, on a counter movement, just a standing vertical jump. He windmill dunks. I mean, he can dunk it from the free throw line. The guy that is uh, non-CNS driven, 205 pounds. He's probably six, you know, he's 6'1", 6'2", 200, 205 pounds, wider body. He's not, he's not even touching the rim, if you want the truth. So yeah, I mean, they're completely different body types, and that and that's what we see here a lot, right? Where the more the more narrow guys are more compressed and they're producing more force, and yeah. they rotate better, right? They they can't stop rotating, rotating sometimes. You know, they they produce more force. Where the wider guy is going to absorb better, more force, right? He's gonna he's gonna have more of a expanded posture where he's able to just. You know, he probably's not going to get hurt as much, right? He, he can't rotate as well, however. He can't produce that force to dunk the ball, right? Uh, Brandon, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that that really checks out from kind of just the descriptions you picture there. You know, we see a lot of the um, usually like, yeah, you're tall, skinny, almost like real wiry guys or you're more compressed individuals. Uh, that's basketball players in right now that uh, really know that often. Uh, probably, probably one of the most compressed individual I've actually ever worked with, honestly, uh, the um, the musculature of them and how tense they are and compressed is, uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it makes sense why they're, they're so bouncy, so springy. Yeah. And at the same time, after kind of a high intent workout, they're, they're pretty gassed at the same time. It's because, like you said, the CNS just gets so excited. They're, they're firing on all cylinders um, at a high rate, and they just sometimes they can't shut it off. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't, I, I don't know that I've ever related it back that much to body type, but I know you guys do a ton of work with, uh, you know, with the infrasternal angle and, and the rib cage and all that type of stuff. So it's, that's kind of interesting to hear. I might have to, uh, I it's, might have to pay attention to that. It's pretty alarming, truthfully, that you see the characteristics of the, of the athlete, right? Where you, you see somebody like Brandon who's super compressed, compact. I'm a little bit wider. Brandon's way more powerful than I am. Right, friend. How what, like one fifty throwing ninety four, ninety five miles an hour, right? I mean, that where does that come from? You know, so it's your body just like we see the common theme in here. It's like we we started looking into it and it's like holy shit, these this like there's a big trend in this stuff. You know, guys' body types matter, and unfortunately, it's just like sometimes it's like this is all you got, right? And at that point, like, do we feed do we feed the guy what he needs, or do we give the guy more of what he wants, or right? When he has, and that's kind of a million dollar question in our industry, in my opinion, right? So yeah, I mean, there's actually I have two thoughts on that. I just had an hour discussion with the interns on 
on what actually makes a great pitcher, right? Yep. And that was we were talking exactly about that, how there's no barrier for entry in pitching or not one that we've actually seen. With the barrier for entry with a left tackle in football, you know that the left tackle is going to be a minimum of 6'3 or 6'4, right? He's going to be 270, 280 pounds at minimum. These are all barriers to get into the sport. You're not going to be 5'8, 195 pounds and play left tackle in the NFL. It just doesn't happen. But yep. in pitching, I've got a 150-pound guy that throws 95. I've got a 250-pound guy that throws 95. At the same at, at the same time, I've got you know a 170-pound guy that throws 97, and a 240-pound guy that throws 87. Right? There's no barrier for entry. You see it all in a, in all spectrums. You know? Yeah. Well, so we were trying to. I was telling them how there's not one specific motor ability in the weight room. There's not there's not one specific body type that I see. Or weight, you know, people always talk about, hey, ah, you got to be, you got to be, you got to be heavier, you got to weigh more to pitch harder or throw harder. Well, I had a 221 pound kid come in here and lose 20 pounds and go from 94, 95 to 101, 98 to 101. He lost 21 pounds and throws 101 mile an hour. So that's not the case either all the time, right? No. And so, and, and I'm not saying that body weight doesn't factor in in some guys, but that's not the absolute of what has to happen for you to throw harder. There's no barrier for entry on any of those physical abilities. And oftentimes it comes back to how you sequence, how does your kinematic sequence play out and where in that sequence do you apply impulse at the right time, right? Exactly. And so, and so I was thinking about that as you were talking. And, and the uh, second question is, you know, we touched on strengths and weaknesses. That's a, that's a great question for performance professionals because so many, so many people, and I had this opinion when I was young, and, you know, it could still go back and forth, but so many people want to chase the weaknesses. I had an intern just now in that conversation say something about the weaknesses. Well, we need to train more mobility, you know, if he doesn't have mobility. Well, no, that's not necessarily the case. We sometimes train weaknesses so much that we hurt their strengths and we forget what makes them an elite athlete was this strength. And we quit training it to train a weakness that doesn't matter. Or the weakness made them an elite athlete. Yeah. The asymmetry, the asymmetry allowed them to get into positions what they needed to compensate into to, pr to produce that force, to absorb that force, or to throw 95, 98, 99 miles an hour, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, that, that comes back to mobility in a lot of cases where everybody just wants to. So the, the, the example over there was I used the motion capture lab to find what their skill is, and then we relate that back to their screen. Because if I just take the screen and say, well, he doesn't have enough thoracic rotation. But guess what? In the motion capture lab, in his skill, he does everything perfect. He sequences perfect. He has, he has adequate hip-shoulder separation. Why do I need to train mobility for him? And the kid goes, well, you know, maybe he, if, he, if the kid sits 95, maybe he's trying to get another 2%. And he's trying to get up to 96 or 97. We need to give him that more mobility. And I'm like, but that doesn't mean that he's going to score 96 or 97. If he has adequate skill development, then really we probably just need to train maximal outputs with him in his skill, a throwing program for velocity, right? Absolutely. You have no idea that giving him more mobility is going to give him another. And that's the thought process of the young coach and the inexperienced coach. And, and, and I'm no different. I used to think like that all the time, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, that's, you know, I know I went off on a tangent there, but that's oh, the problem. Sure in weaknesses and strengths and mobility is always the end all be all for everything and it's not and that's that's something we've adapted in our strength in our strength excuse me in our assessment process is we're looking at yeah xyz right we're looking at how well you rotate in all your, your hips your shoulders your t-spine you know what your ranges of motion are but at the same time we're looking at like are you hurt no okay are you are you performing well yes okay so why the fuck are we going to change anything? Right. right. And, you know, if they're hurt, right, but they have a left, you know, some kind of like a left depression or right depression or their thorax is shifted or the pelvis is hiked or whatever it may be, and they're having an oblique, right, then that's our time to intervene and fix it, right? Um, then we can apply what we call our A-block theories where it's their, their breathing patterns, the restoration patterns, their CNS patterns, all that stuff. Where they get ready to ready for the day for throwing. They do it before they throw and before they lift, and it's attacking their strengths and their weaknesses, right? Um, 
you know, if we're, we're going to regain ranges of motion they don't have, like, I don't like the fact that a guy is like their IR is dog shit. Okay. Just yeah. as, as for me, it's just like, all right, you have a lot of end range to end range, range of motion. And then you have a lack of IR, but like how well do you transfer from end range, right? To IR. And if you can't stop the, that e-cell pattern because your IR stuff, that's, that's a cue for me for injury. Yeah. Right? So, Addressing addressing certain points, but if he if the kid like has minimal T spine rotation, but he's getting into on the mountain, our our, our track man data is throwing. He, he's not cutting the ball. He's not doing any you know missing arm side up a lot. His game his game velos are, are there. Like I'm, I'm not going to mess with that. You know what I mean I, at the end of the day, we're performance coaches, not rehab specialists. I guess. <laughs> but yeah, and that's actually where I went off track. Uh, many years ago i went off track in that i felt like um i had to con i had to do all the pt work as well in the weight room and so my program turned into almost too much pt and it um the more pt i did and the more stuff like that the more injuries i saw if you want the truth oh, yeah. absolutely and, and so i had uh, eventually i i kind of saw where i was making my mistakes and had to change it and when we did we saw a lot of things clean up because we started making the athlete resilient and robust again, if you want the truth. 100%. 100%. And we, we take that concept into the weight room now, right? Where if he does need some kind of hip internal rotation, we're going to give him a pattern to bias that hip internal rotation if he truly needs it, yeah. right? And we have guys, like like we, you said mentioned earlier, we look at the ISA a lot. We have guys that are more, <laughs> more compact. You know, they're going to they're gonna be better at, uh, at a squat. Right, um, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> a squat. Right. So let's feed them that. Let's give them that. Yeah. You know what I mean, guys. You know, a little bit wider guys will be better at hinging. They're going to be more posterior compressed with their scaps. Right. So let's do a little bit more hinging stuff with, you know, maybe a more narrow supinated grip with like closer grip to get that the, the rib cage to expand on the back and their scaps to sit a little bit better. Right, so we're taking, you know, that concave convex relationship between the thorax and the gap, and applying it to just a simple hinge pattern in RDL. Where they're going to make it close to it to get that scap pattern in a better position. Yeah. You know, um, because like, as you know, and I, I, I hope like, your scap dictates a lot in the throwing pattern, right? If it's if it's sitting and it's winged, or if it's sitting and it's compressed and de depressed or whatever, like. Is that something that you'd want to address in the weight room? Yeah, I mean, honestly, we will address that stuff with yeah. some of our guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, that's where we're taking our concepts into it, where we're going to, you know, even in a hinge pattern, it's like, this isn't arm care. What the fuck are you talking about? Right? But we're actually getting that rib cage to sit in a better position. Yeah. So that gap is going to get a little bit more around around that rib cage and sit in a better neutral position to allow them to get, get you know, on time and get that kinetic sequencing better, you know, scapular humoral rhythm better and go from there. Yeah. And so this is the other thing too, and, and this is what you guys do a good job at is so much of it relates back to, uh, relates back to their skill. Yeah. Right. So much of it. And we did less mobility work because of the situation, the cards we were dealt this year with COVID and how we had to handle the weight room. I did less, less soft tissue and mobility work this year than I've ever done in the 14, 15 years I've been here at TCU. And we had a healthier team than we've ever had at TCU. And a lot of that comes back to the way our coaches handled the education that we provided our coaching staff on practice, like developing the practices and the feedback with the athletes as far as, you know, how they're feeling, what we can do in practice based on, you know, how our kids feel. And, um, tying everything back to skill work trying to uh trying to build the most efficient movers in their skill and that has been the key to me in preventing injury or or helping reduce i should say we're not preventing but reducing yes yeah. injury, injury reduction because so many doctors you know this is the problem i had early in my career again you you'd have a kid get hurt or whatever and the doctor would say oh he's low trapped in fire he's oh he's got a poor <laughs> mead or Ah, oh, front side hip. It doesn't have any rotation. 
but we have no idea what this kid looks like on the mound when he's, you know, his shoulders are parallel to the ground, but he throws with his arm over the top like he's playing cricket. You have to know these things because it's all holistic in the actual development of athlete health and performance. And so we have to tie all these other things into it as well. 100%. And I mean, our throwing guys know the human body better than most throwing guys, I'd say. Yeah. Say, and that's because they're in our meetings every single day talking about our athletes have full access to every one of our athletes programs so they say all right you know johnny has is throwing this pitch this pitch this pitch his vertical break is this his horizontal break is this you know his pitch characteristics is this you know blah 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 so we need supination or pronation or whatever you know slider heavy guy needs better supination you know sinker ball guy needs better pronation Whatever it may whatever it may be, right? So if he if he sees a decrease in performance on the mound, right, or the trackman data, or just the, the slow mo video motion capture video we're doing, we don't have a motion capture sensor or anything like that. We just have slow mo video record, right? <laughs> but you know, <laughs> but you know, we're able to talk with our PTs in this room right here next door with our pitching coach and our strength staff and address that performance, right? And yeah, we're not, we're not coaching bodybuilders, we're not coaching powerlifters, we're coaching baseball players, first and foremost. So how much time are we going to invest in the weight room versus the better performance on the mound? Right. You tie the skill back into what the weight room, the, the needs of the weight room and the needs of their you know mobility and all that stuff. And that's that's the way it needs to be done is skill has to drive everything else that we're doing, not the other way around. And that's what we see so much in, in our field, especially at the college level, right, is the strength and conditioning drives what you hope is happening on the mountain. That's yeah. And it needs to be the reverse. That's the most important thing. Well, we see it in high school, the high school level here, right? We have kids like, oh, I can just go to 24 hour fitness and get bigger. And I'm going to be fine. Like, you know, that's not, that's not, that's not the case. Like that's not how this works, you know? And it just like gives us like, it feels, makes us feel like discredited. Like, dude, no, like, that's our time to educate though. Coming back to it, you know? I mean, how many times have we heard, like, I just, I, I, what can I do after at the gym in 24-hour fitness to get bigger? I'm like, dude, chill out. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, something I wanted to ask you, how much how much gait stuff do you do? Do you look at, like, uh, walking? Do you look at sprinting? Like, do you look at foot, pelvic, thorax relationships? What are you doing? What do you, how, do you, how do you go about that? Um, probably fairly minimal. I guess the – the biggest spot that we would look at it in is sprint mechanics. I mean, we, we record that and we'll film yeah. that type of stuff to see if we've got a kid that has chronic hamstring, hamstring injuries or issues to see if they, you know, are, are basically flying out the backside. Um, if they're way too backside dominant, pelvis is in a bad position, that type of thing. We'll do it in the sprints. But uh, as far as like studying gait mechanics, walking or anything like that, no, that's not something I'm, that's not something I'm diving into. I mean, again, it's like I talked to the interns, you know, we get the questions on PRI and, and all these other systems that are kind of out there. And also you got to remember, I've got in the fall, I had 49 kids in two different weight rooms in an hour and 15 minutes that I had to train. So it's me going up and uh, up and down back and forth between two different weight rooms to make sure that both programs are happening efficiently. Right. So it's, it's what can you coach in the time that you're allotted and, and I guess in our screening process, that's not one of the things that we're looking at. But I definitely like to hear of how and I guess why you guys are, are, are possibly applying that. I mean, absolutely. That's one bad Brandon can speak on this better than anybody, truthfully. It's you know, we we apply one of our part of our assessment, just take a walk to the water fountain and back. Yeah. Right. And then we'll look at how they sprint on their sprint days and how well they're rotating, how well what their foot strike is like. Are they pronating too much? Are they supinating too much? And then we can address that in the weight room. We can get them, you know, if it's a slower guy, more than likely they don't have that positive shin angle, right? So they might need a little bit more speed and power. So we're gonna get them, you know, into a positive shin angle by getting that that toe elevated, right? And getting their knee over their toe. Um you know, so just able to address those certain things in the weight room. Brandon, talk a little bit about the gate stuff and all that. Yeah, so I mean, um, part, of, part of my assessment. Can you hear him okay? Yeah. So yeah, part of my initial assessment is, is you know, I just basically do a basic posture check. Um, I have the guys sometimes kick their socks off. 
Um, just take a look at their feet and kind of what their toes are doing. And I know, obviously, like like you said, in your kind of setting, that's going to be obviously a little difficult. You're not going to be able to have each individual do all that. But a lot of times, just the, the resting state of the, the athlete's foot will kind of show you the kind of positions they favor within that gait cycle. Yeah. Uh, like DJ was mentioning, you know, there's, there's kind of a few different phases of the gait cycle. You have heel strike, mid stance, and then toe off or um, late phase. So that kind of tells you, like like DJ was saying, if a guy's kind of stuck on that that backside or the heel side, um, that kind of shows you that, like you said, it's going to be a little bit probably slower, um, stuck in you know that heel strike phase. So um, you can train the guy to get maybe a little bit more out of that, get him a little bit more mid stance, a little bit more internal rotation um, within the pelvis, get him kind of rotating a little bit better as he's shifting his weight. Um, it also shows you kind of where the guy's center of mass is kind of starting at. Um, and that's also a big thing, too, is it shows you if this guy way forward on his toes or is he way back, you know, on his heels. If he's way out on his toes, that shows you that he's probably going to be a little bit more of the springier guy because he's out in that, that late stance. He's going to be a little bit more propulsive. And uh, depending on how far forward he is, we can tell you, you know, is that guy maybe going to be maybe a little bit more prone to twin splints, knee pain, uh, maybe have a little bit more anterior hip compression because he's going to be probably a little bit tighter in the pelvis and probably jump forward a little bit more. Um, so yeah, there's just a lot of things that you can really kind of dive in and, you know, just see what, you know, the athlete does and you know, all even just simple thing I can do too, is just have the athlete take a shoe off and look at the bottom of it. And if it's kind of an older shoe, you can really just see where they're, you know, they're resting at or where they're really putting a lot of their weight in when they're doing, you know, change of direction stuff or yeah, um, just stuff like that. So a lot of, yeah. lot of things you, can, you can really dive into so on even, it. Even as like simple as body type, yeah. going back to the body type thing, it's like, the wider guys are going to be slower. The faster guys are going to be springier. And, so, you know, give that – going back to it, give the athlete what they have. But also, like, yeah, I want my my third baseman to run, to run a little faster. So let's give that to them in the weight room. Let's give them, you know, more propulsive state of, of an exercise. Let's get a front foot elevated, you know, exercise with the four on a, on a cable row, right, where the other guys can just do a basic cable row, you know. Um, by just looking at just basically looking at their at their body type, you know, not not having to assess so much, right? In my opinion, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so my thought on that was like your heel dominant guys that you were kind of talking about being stuck on on the backside there. It almost seems like those guys would benefit from a lot of a lot of elastic work. We do a ton of extensive jumps for elasticity and whatnot on low intensity days. Yeah. And am I thinking about that right? You, you yeah, no, and then that's where you can even um, you can even play around with like how they're jumping too. You know, you can elevate the front foot versus the the rear foot. You know, like put them in an R fest foot jump or um, have them do maybe more of a split squat front foot elevated. Um, stuff like that can also kind of change the the swim angle and foot position and either um, bias more pronation or the supination. Yeah. And they can start them on a box, right? You can have guys start on a box and jump versus guys that, you know, will start from a deeper position or a higher position um, based on, on their presentation, their pelvis or their foot. Yeah, that's interesting. How, uh, I guess my question is, how, how many guys do you have to screen your athletes when they come in? <laughs> we have, how many coaches do we have here? Uh, Four, five, we have four coach, four, four head coaches, and then two interns. Mm -hmm. But the interns, no, they, they don't. I mean, they just, they just so the, yeah. You, you take a new athlete in. Your you or one of the other head coaches basically takes them through that screening process. I mean, I I was very impressed with your screening process when you were here, whatever it was, probably four years ago. Yeah, we kind of sat down and you detailed that for our interns. I was very impressed then. I mean, I still am. Obviously, you guys have grown the screening process because you didn't talk about that at the time. Um, but, yeah, that was my question is just how many coaches do you have access to help screen? Yeah, I mean, we – Ashton does a great job scheduling. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the biggest thing. We, you know, we have a guy – everything like – we like we have the opportunity to do what you don't, that customization aspect. And if the guy comes in the door, does his assessment, but his coach isn't ready to walk him through first day, what was the point of the assessment, right? So managing our schedule where it's like, hey, Brandon, you have, let's see, Brandon, you have Zep today at 3 o'clock, and tomorrow he's going to be at first lift, going to be at 1 o'clock, right? So, what we, you know, Brandon will be, no, he has a 3 o'clock session, then his first lift will be at that next day. So just kind of 
scheduling and staggering, you know, when, when guys come in, how they, you know, what they need. Um, right. Truthfully, only four of us are doing four of us, right? Are doing assessments? Yeah, four of us are only doing the assessments. So, I mean, we have each guy probably has around 50 to 60 minimum athletes, which is crazy, right? But then we also have the interns to help coach. Um, we actually hired another intern. So we have three interns now. Three? Yeah, three interns now. So we just kind of, those interns help us a lot, but we also a lot of time on our part to educate sure. them to come to that point. So then, um, so then does the coach that screens, does he write the program? So will Brandon yes. write the program for that kid for the entirety of his training? Yep. Yep. So that'll be his, his and then we, we do, we do switch coaches once in a while. Like, you know, each, each kid has a different personality and each coach has a different personality. Right. So we'll try and match that communication portion of it where, you know, he's super quiet and we don't have, we have a super loud coach that makes him feel uncomfortable or a coach, that, a coach that's super hands-on, right. And loves to overview things for this quiet kid. He's just not going to get anything out of it. You know what yeah. I mean? So you want somebody to match that personality type to yeah, to to get the athlete, you know, to to buy in better, to get better responsive, um, you know, out of their better response out of their program. But at the same time, it's like, well, you know, we can't perfectly match every single guy based on an email and a phone call that we get. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So, yeah. That's yeah, the, right. the hard part. Yeah, that's that's uh, I mean, that's good stuff. Brandon, what is your go to resource as far as your some of your gate stuff? I mean, I will say you you talked about it a second ago with the hips when I do our hip evaluations um, and we look at that in screening. I'll notice just the uh, just their, you know, carrying position or whatever you want to call it as far as how the femur, how the femur sits, how the tibia sits against that and then what the foot does. You can tell your external rotation dominant guys versus your internal rotation dominant guys and things like that. I've just never carried it out as far as actually studying the gate. Yeah, so I mean, um, you know, I, I usually start with kind of just an ISA check, kind of just to see what their their initial axial skeleton uh, kind of doing to start out with, yeah. and then go to the hips. And usually, um, depending on if it's you know just uh, there's not a whole lot of there's not a whole lot of compensation going on. Um, it's just a basic narrow ISA, then most likely they're most likely going to be compressed on the, the front side, their anterior hip. So that means they'll most likely be restricted there. Uh, but then sometimes, like you said, you'll see a guy that, like, you know, you can do a table assessment with them, um, see like, all right, you, you know, you're not going to have this. And then you watch them move and do what they, they do. And it's like, okay, well, um, it's actually not really affecting you as much um, as we, we would have thought. Uh, but then... Uh, what I usually do is then, like I said, I do a little bit of a posture check. I'll have them, you know, usually their shirts off, so that we kind of see the creases in their their lower back as well. Um, are they a little bit hip hiked one way or the other? Um, is that pelvis really dumped forward? Do they have a lot of extension in that lower lumbar? Um, are they maybe a little bit rotated in the pelvis more than normal? Because uh, we kind of have noticed that everybody has just a little bit of asymmetry in the hips anyways, just because of our internal makeup within the diaphragm. Um, the right dome's a little bit bigger. You got a heart on the left side. Um, so we also we also see the right side if it's lacking on on say internal rotation, the the hip and the shoulder are going to mirror each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No. So um, so most likely they're they're already the athlete is probably already favoring their their right side just a little bit. Um, that's just the, the body's comfortable starting position most likely. Uh, but then obviously, you know, you might have a, a lefty dominant pitcher um, that, you know, with just all of the, the countless repetition to that side, that, that pelvis might have been maybe adapted a little bit or, you know, is just turned a little bit too much now to that side. And um, that's where it kind of comes down to just the injury history. You know, is, is the guy coming to you because he's injured or is he coming to you because, you know, he just heard about you and he just wants to get better and he's just looking for performance? Right. Um, if, you know, if they're, if they're coming to you because they're injured, then that's probably the, the time to get in there, intervene a little bit more um, and really kind of dive into that. Where, uh, you know, we'll get into a little bit more gate cycle stuff. We'll watch them walk. Um, are they are they coming heel off early? That's a good kind of indicator that they're probably missing some extension in the hip. Um, I watch their arm swing. If their elbows aren't getting past their midline, then that's probably also another indicator that that body's missing extension. Um, and then we also usually see that internal rotation goes with extension. So most likely if they're missing the extension, then they're probably losing a little bit of internal rotation somewhere within the, the hip. And then um, then again, it just goes to a posture check as well. As, you know, the guy, 
like uh, it says humorous, super, super far, or I'm sorry, not the humor, but the humor, you know, completely internally rotated and stuck in kind of an adducted state, or is it extremely externally rotated with the pelvis jump forward? Um, so there's just a few, you know, it just kind of starts with the initial orientation as well of that athlete. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. But my initial question is, what are your actual resources? What do you? Uh, <laughs> so uh, we've been we've been taking a course together. Yeah, the, the, the biomechanics the course, course with uh, the Connor Harris. Yeah, Connor. Uh, I, I, uh, I've dove into a lot of uh, couples lately. Um, there's a, a guy named uh, Neil Neil Hollinen that I kind of. Uh, um, yeah, Alex Effer, uh, yeah. different people out there. Um, yeah, I'm familiar with Connor's stuff. What do you uh, What do you think about it? Uh, I like some of it, and then um, some of the stuff I think could be maybe a little bit of a stretch um, to an extent. Uh, At some point, you just got to get after it. Yeah, <laughs> no, to be honest, right? We got we got to lift weights. Like, I mean, know, I was I've I've been on Connor's podcast before, and I know he's. I mean, I know he's a pretty big PRI advocate or he was at the time. Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with, with any of that stuff. I'm just curious. I don't dive into it as much as, as some people. So um, I've seen a lot of good stuff about his biomechanics course. I think it's what he calls it right now. Right. Something biomechanics. Yeah. And so that's why I was wondering if it, if it was uh yeah, worth something worth looking into, I guess. Yeah, I would definitely get the, the beginner one and give that to your interns. You can just do one basic login and give it to the interns. It's like it's cheap, like there's like a hundred bucks or something like that. And you, you, know, you only have to need one login for it, and it just breaks down everything human movement. And he does, I mean, he's so easy to understand. He he does such a good job with it. And I mean, like you said, you've been on his podcast before. You know how it works, but like, he's super easy to understand. You know, yeah. he takes the very complex side of things, like like a Bill Hartman, right? For me, it's like what the fuck is he saying? You know, and you know, and, Zach, and Connor, Connor, and Zach. Even Zach's really easy to understand. Zach's good. I like couples a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's he's the man. Who, who are you learning from? What are you learning right now? What are you What are you studying? I mean, honestly, my stuff right now. Uh, shit, I hate to say this. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is more. I, I'm trying to put out my own stuff. I guess I love that. I yeah. haven't been. I haven't been doing that much research into it anymore uh, i shouldn't say that that sounds terrible mm -hmm. mine is more developing the systems as far as our gps system goes and you know the force plates and all of that stuff trying to manage and develop systems for that data right now um so i'm actually in the process of trying to hire a sports science intern for the first time ever to help us with that i've got two interns here that are gonna that are gonna assist a little bit in that endeavor but we've got so much data here at our disposal, but I have nobody to help me with it. I can put a picture in a motion capture lab. I can put, I can put him on a force plate mount and I can see all this data, but I've got 29 pictures. And so at the same time, I've still got to train him. I'm still creating throwing programs. I'm still doing everything else to, to try to, you know, increase performance. And so it becomes overwhelming if you want the truth. So that's, I mean, that's, that's something I wish we had more access to is that force plate feedback and and all that when i went to uh arkansas with blaine yeah i got to mess around with like hobbs and he had like the, the, the force plate inside the mound right and of course it was really cool was yeah awesome. I mean, we have I, the same one i mean that's what we have and so you all are rich i'm poor so. i know we're, <laughs> we're, we're rich until it comes to manpower <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but that's the uh that's the difficulties we've got access to this data and it's at the it's it's at my fingertips as far as like knowing exactly what this kid needs in his skill work or you know what I mean? But I, yeah. I just don't have it. And yeah. so I need people in here to help me break down that data a little bit. The stuff it's like I was telling the interns, I've got a bunch of baseball interns this, this semester that are very interested in all these things. And they've been running correlations for me between some of the metrics that we have and velocity, uh, whether it's on mound or exit velocities. And I tell them the stuff driveline is doing right now is freaking so awesome in my opinion because they have the manpower the biomechanists the sports scientists the statistics guys that can break down all those different metrics and just feed you know their computer all this stuff to figure out what 
actually matters if you want the truth. And they're going to figure it out whether they know it now or not. They're going to figure out what truly matters. Well, they're already changing the game, right? They are 100%. And I'm jealous of them all the time because, I mean, I I love what they do. And and they are one of my number one resources. We have the data that they have in a lot of aspects, but I just don't have manpower to help. Yeah. I mean, you can't hire anybody, huh? Let's go through every, go throughout the yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not that easy. So that's why we have to try to get, you know, free help a lot of times and, and <laughs> hope that somebody comes in and can give you a nugget and say, hey, this is what I found. And that's what we're kind of hoping for right now. But as far as studying stuff, my, mine is all related back to right now. I should be honest. Mine's related back to practice planning in a way um, and how our GPS numbers and preparing for the workloads and 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 everything that we're going to see in the first couple of weeks of practices to eliminate the problem of the spring training injury plague that you see every year across big league, you know, big league spring training injuries, whether it's shoulder, elbow, hamstring, groin, we're trying to develop our system so that we don't have those problems so that we can educate coaching staffs to, to better organize practices so that the first day of practice isn't the hardest damn practice of the, isn't the hardest thing you did the entire year. Exactly. Communicating with the the head coach, right? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, like I said, that's one of the, uh, one of the biggest things, the biggest positives that's come in the last two years here is the, the, the holistic outlook we have with practice, with strength and conditioning, with, you know, medical in designing that practice plan and our coaches understanding that we have to blend these things in as we go into individuals. And then as we go into the first week of practice, and then as, you know, as practices progress over the course of spring, whatever spring training into games, we have to progress these things so that your workloads don't get out of whack because the reason kids get hurt is because they're not prepared for the demands that they're going to face. So if we prepare our kids to, to, to face those demands, we won't have those injuries because this is one of my favorite quotes ever. Um, uh, Tony Holler, I think, is the one, right? Feed the cats, Tony Holler? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he says, would you rather have – I think it's from him. He said, would you rather be 100% prepared? Would you rather have – would you rather have 90% of your guys 100% prepared or would you rather have 100% of your guys 90%? That's the quote that I use with our staff all the time because it doesn't matter what sport coach, they want to overdo it, right? They want it. We got to do more. We got to do more. We're not ready. We got to do more. And then you lose the top three guys on your team, season shot. But if you did less and still had the top three guys, I, you'd, you'd probably be pretty happy with what's going on. I mean, physically and neurologically, it's literally impossible to reach 100%. Yeah. Like you can't, you can never reach that 100%. There's always, a half a percent better or a half a percent worse, right? You'll never reach a hundred percent. And you got to look at the demands, right? If you're throwing a bullpen or a live session in a game, in a, in an inner squad, and then your first day you throw a live, you know, you're, you're starting pitcher on a Friday night at your guys' stadium in a packed, packed house. There's going to be way more demand, way more stress on that Friday night than inside of a, you know, inner squad controlled scrimmage, right? Yeah. So, you know, learning how to control those those demands, like where you have to like, all right, he's never going to reach, you know, you think we're tra- training 100% where we're kicking your ass, but we're never going to reach that Friday night competition feel, you yeah. know, in, in practice. And getting to the point where you can manage that workload, where you're going to allow him to get to that point without getting hurt is probably the most important thing versus trying to mimic it inside of uh, in a in squad game, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's, that's been a bunch of what we're doing. Uh, the other thing too, I guess, as far as resources for me, it's strength coach network. I think strength coach network and some of the material they put out now it, it there's not going to be a bunch of baseball stuff on there, but as far as just the general aspect of being a strength coach and the management of, of large groups and an organization of, of, you know, how you put all the pieces together in a, in a, uh, in a college setting in a university setting has been, They've got a lot of really good material. I'm gonna look into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we try and learn from everybody. That's why this podcast has been fun. I mean, we learn from you, like you, a lot. We learn from a lot of people, you know. And that's kind of that's kind of that's so fun to, to educate my staff, and my staff educates me at the same time. You know, everybody has something to to teach. Absolutely, that's why I thought about starting my own podcast. I just I didn't want to, dude, and I was like. 
like Ashton and Ashton kept on bugging me to do it, and I was like, God dang it! All right, fine, I'll do it. It's just a good chance to meet guys, right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we had a great conversation today. Like last time we talked was like two months ago, right? So, yeah. you know, it gives us an opportunity to catch up and meet new people and, and all that stuff. So we had we could we had a mental performance coach on. I had no fucking idea what I was talking about, you know. And I was like, I because I meditate, I do certain things for myself, but it's like not to that level, right? And it was just like I learned literally the whole time you were in that podcast, right? Mm-hmm. I literally learned the entire time. I was like, this is awesome. This is, you know, trying to find people that you want to learn from and have a good conversation with. Right. Thing ever, Absolutely. You know? Sweet. Well, I appreciate you coming on, dude. You're the man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, we need to connect more often so I can learn from you guys because you guys are smarter than me. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. We'll have to also bring, uh, bring the staff down again. See ya. Yeah. 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 No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Let me know if you need anything. Yeah, please. Let's let's jump on another call soon just to bullshit. Yeah, sounds good. All right, man. I'll talk to you. Yeah, thanks, DJ. Right, bye.